And once you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 5. As we look just really to finish up this chapter that we've been in now for a couple weeks already. It's a great chapter. And we are, I trust, learning and just... Uh, discovering a lot of great truths and exciting things for us here in God's word. And what we've been seeing in John chapter 5 is Jesus, you know, he came into Jerusalem during this feast. And so there's a lot of crowds around. And as he comes into Jerusalem, he comes to uh, an area called the Pools of Bethesda there in Jerusalem. And there's where all these people were gathered to seek a healing and to be made well. And, and uh, Jesus comes to a man that has been there um, he's been sick, uh, paralyzed, an invalid for 38 years. He's been in this condition. Jesus comes and he makes him well. But that started to kind of, you know, incite a little bit of, uh, of opposition from the religious leaders who see this man walking around now carrying his mat. And it happened on a Sabbath day, right? And I think Jesus doing that so you know, just intentionally to kind of get people to think, what are you really believing in and holding on? And so this man re eventually reports back that it was Jesus. And so now Jesus is getting drilled by these religious leaders. And these are the ones that have been very antagonistic against Jesus for the things he was doing that were going outside of their, their reason or their thinking. You see, Jesus didn't break the Sabbath as they were questioning him of doing. He didn't break the Sabbath, but he broke their interpretation of what they thought was required for the Sabbath. And that was not doing any work, which required not carrying a, a mat or doing any work like that. And so Jesus broke their interpretation of the Sabbath. But then he starts to say that, listen, in chapter 5, he says, My father's been working until now. Never stopped working. He continues on. He doesn't take a rest for the Sabbath. He's always at work, and I must be doing that as well. And so in saying that, Jesus starts to kind of reveal that he's God. He's equal with God. Well, now the religious leaders are not just upset that he's breaking their thought of the Sabbath, but now he's declaring himself to be equal with God. And so they're really getting upset. They're drilling Jesus. And so Jesus now, as we're going to see, as we pick it up here in verse 31, starts to kind of reveal how he's equal with God. But it's not just because of what he's saying. There's witnesses that are backing that up, you see. He's setting out to say, I'm not speaking for myself. I've got others that are also revealing who I am and that I am who I say I am. Look at verse 31. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. If I'm bearing witness only of myself, well, that's not really a valid witness. You see, there's a number of things that we can say about ourselves, right? The question is, is that true? Perhaps you've been around people that seem like they love to boast in their accomplishments or boast in who they are, and yet you're sitting back going, is that really true? I'm having a hard time believing that because there's people that love to just puff themselves up in a way and they deal more with fantasy than they do with reality. I had a friend that I grew up with that would just come with these outrageous stories as like an eight, nine-year-old of these feats that he would do that you just knew there is no way that you've done that. And you just stop kind of believing them. So there's a lot of things that we can say. The question is, is there evidence, proof? There's something that validates that. I could sit here and tell you a lot of things about myself today that I'm able to slam dunk a basketball on a regulation height hoop or that I once had an illustrious career as a model. I'm not sure why you're laughing at that, but you see, 
I can say those things, but then also the evidence that is staring you in the face would make you go, everything about you seems to contradict, contradict those two statements you just made, right? You're looking at that going, I, I'm going to need some proof. If you sit there and tell me that you're able to slam dunk a basketball, I'm going to need some evidence. I'm going to need a witness. I'm going to need to see that myself, right? Well, that's what Jesus is setting out to do. To say, I'm not just speaking on myself. And you see, when Jesus says that my witness is not true, he's not saying my witness is invalid or that it is a, a falsehood as though Jesus is speaking an untruth because Jesus can't do that. He's God, right? And he's completely true and, and truthful. So he's not speaking a lie. But you see, what Jesus is getting at is that even within their very law and word of God, God has already established that there is to be a valid witness of two or three witnesses, basically, that can come alongside and give evidence for that. See, the witness of a single person was not considered sufficient evidence in a court of law. God's divine decree was that at least two or three witnesses were required before a valid judgment could be given. And so the Lord Jesus, he was about to give not just two or three witnesses, but to give four witnesses in the remainder of chapter five that we're going to be looking at here. He says in verse 32, therefore, or there's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, Jesus here brings up, listen, there's another. And he's speaking of the Father here that gives witness. Now, when people today, and this is interesting, when people today try to say that the Trinity is an invention of man, that they'll say, oh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. That's just a man-made kind of creation or, or theology. That's not really what it is. And there are those that will say that God is just one. And there's not three persons of the Trinity. Well, in saying that, they fail to see the very requirement for the proof of God that God's already established in his word. Because with the Trinity now, we are meeting the standard of having a threefold witness to reveal the reality of the proof of God. Because some will say, God is only one. And, and, you know, when you have Jesus, when you have the Holy Spirit, it's just one God who's at that time revealed himself as Jesus, or he'll come at a time and reveal himself as the Holy Spirit, or other times he'll reveal himself as the Father, but not three distinct separate people. And they'll say, so it's just one God. But that would be like me then, going into a, a, a court of law firm, you know, having to give a witness for something and say, oh yeah, I saw that situation unfold and I'm a valid witness of that. I'm a father and here I am and I'm giving a witness. And then I come in the next day and say, oh listen, there's a second witness now. I'm a, I'm a son actually. I'm more than a father, I'm a son. And so I'm gonna give my account now as a son to that situation. And I come in a third time and say, let me give you another witness here, not as a father, as a son, but as a pastor. I'm going to give a third witness to this account. The judge would be looking at me going, well, wait a second. No, that's, there's just one witness here. You're just one person. And that's what a lot of people say about God, you see, and it doesn't give validity to the very standard of witness that God has established in his word. When we're talking about the Trinity, we're talking about three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that brings about now a valid witness. God's established that. That's why the Trinity is so important. So Jesus speaks now here in verse 32 of the witness of the Father, and the Father brings that validity to who Jesus is. But Jesus now goes on to show us 
four, actually four different witnesses that all validate who he says he is. Again, it's all stemming back to this debate that these religious leaders are having and questioning him uh, and, and kind of saying, you can't be God. You can't be the father. No, there's no way. Well, Jesus brings up four witnesses. He's gonna bring us the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of his works, the witness of the, of the father, of God the father. And then fourthly, the fourth witness is gonna be the scriptures, God's very word. And that's what we're gonna be looking at as we go through the rest of chapter five here. Look at verse 33, as we bring up the first witness, which is John the Baptist. Verse 33 says, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from men, but I say these things that you may be saved. See, when John the Baptist came onto the scene, it starts some interesting curiosity on behalf of all those that were beginning to hear the message and see this man that came out so crazily out of the wilderness, dressed in, you know, um, this, this hairy cloak, you know, and, and eating locusts. And they're looking at this guy, what is this guy all about? But they're hearing what he's saying, this message of repent, you know? And so it stirred up this curiosity. People sent to inquire of him and hear from him. And they wondered if he indeed might be the Messiah. Are you the one? Are you the guy? But what did John always do? He quickly always turned down any attention or accolades being dropped onto him. And he quickly deferred to Jesus Christ. In fact, go over to John chapter one with me and just flip over a couple pages in your Bible there. John chapter one. And we're gonna read from verse 29 and a few verses here. Starting in John 1, 29, here's what we read. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who's preferred before me for he was before me. Verse 31, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water and John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and you remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and testified that this is the son of God. So John here now, he's giving that witness of Jesus that I've seen and testified that this is indeed the son of God. John makes it very clear and reveals that. And Jesus brings up John the Baptist here as that valid witness of who he said he was. John was always ready to step aside and just point people to Jesus. His very mission was to make Jesus known. And Jesus knows that many went after John thinking he must be somebody, but Jesus knows that his testimony was always about testifying of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, you see, he's not interested in just another man's opinion. He's not looking to raise his popularity poll. Jesus is not interested in gathering any kind of fanfare or approval from man. He's just communicating these things so that people will come to see that he's the one whom he said he is, and it's not just from his word alone. And if people would receive him, Jesus says, and believe in him, then they can be saved. Notice that at the end of verse 34. But I say these things that you may be saved. You see, what we're seeing here is the great heart of Jesus. His love for people. Jesus' desire was to see people saved. He's not, he's not getting into an argument with the crowd. He's not looking to try to debate with them in any way and show how they're wrong. 
That's not Jesus' heart. He's simply saying what he needs to say so that they will believe in him, that he's the son of God, and that by believing in him, they may have life in his name. That's all Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm not looking to bolster me. I'm looking to give you what you need so that you will believe. Because his heart is that they may be saved. And think about this, because here's this religious, the, the religious leaders now, this audience that Jesus is engaging with here in chapter five. Think about this. The very people that in just a few years' time will be calling out for Jesus to be crucified. The very people that Jesus knows is against him and have been antagonistic against him that is only gonna grow. And yet, what do we see Jesus here? He's not looking to say, you guys, you don't deserve my love. No, he's saying, listen, I'm trying to reveal to you that which is gonna help you to believe in me so that you may be saved. That's the heart of Jesus here. He shows his great love for all people in that his heart is for them to be saved. And I pray that we grow in that kind of heart that our heavenly father has, that our savior has. Just having a love for the lost, having a desire that people would get saved, that when we're walking around in this world and conducting our business and doing whatever we're doing, that we're not just quickly walking by people, that we're not just looking at people with disdain thinking, oh, those people certainly aren't deserving of God's love. Oh, those people aren't the people that God wants to reach out to. But that we're seeing that God's heart is that they would all be saved. And may that be our heart that moves us on to say, man, I wanna live my life in a way where people can see Jesus, like John the Baptist, where I would just get out of the way and point people to Jesus that, that he might increase but I would decrease that I can just show people the love of Jesus and desire and be moved with a compassion for them to be saved because that's the heart of Jesus here. Think about his audience and you think about what he's doing. Saying, I'm saying these things, I'm speaking to you this way that, that you might be saved. It's incredible. And again, speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus says that he was the burning and shining light in verse 35. Look at that there, John 5, 35. He was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. So again, like I said, John came and he really stirred things up, right? He was provoking people to repent and receive Jesus. People were excited with that message and, and the kinds of things that were going on. They were just rejoicing in the light. Oh man, because remember, there had been like, you know, 400 years past of just silence, where they hadn't seen anything like this. They hadn't seen God really communicating through, you know, prophets or anything. And John comes on the scene. All of a sudden there's like this, this renewed excitement that maybe God's on the move here. They're rejoicing in that light. But as soon as John pointed people to Jesus, then they had issue with it. They received the messenger, but wouldn't receive the Messiah. How strange that was. But before we move on, I just love that description that John was that burning and shining lamp. See, again, John had a fire that was lit in his heart because of who he was living for. John wasn't out conducting anything to bolster his ministry. He'd have disciples following him and all of a sudden Jesus comes on the scene. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's like, what are you doing with me? That's the guy you wanna follow. He wasn't trying to raise up a ministry you know, John the Baptist ministry and come see me, come follow. That was in his heart. It was like, point people to Jesus. 
He had a fire that was lit in him because it was all about Jesus. And I pray that we might have a fire in our heart, a passion for Jesus that causes us to be a bright, shining light in this world, just like John was. Say, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And I want a fire that's burning that people can look at me and see that it's not about me, it's about Jesus. That it's simply reflecting that love and that grace and that goodness of Jesus. That's what should be causing us to be on fire for him. You know, we used to sing that song, right? This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Don't hide it under a bush, oh no. And sometimes we can do that. Rather than being a burning, shining lamp, we're just that little flickering flame that's just ready to be extinguished at just the slightest movement. Or we're hiding it, we're just, we're, we're backing away. And I pray that we're just, we're on fire ourselves for Jesus. That we're a burning and shining lamp and we're setting other things on blaze around us for Jesus. Now, one thing that should show, again, is just that desire to be a witness of him. Because if you've experienced that love and that grace of God, then you have something to share with others. Just like John the Baptist here. Right? He's experienced just that goodness of God, and he's just sharing that with others. Um, Sheldon Van Aken, who wrote A Severe Mercy, said this. He said, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But on the contrary, the, the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians when they're self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when they're narrow and repressive. Then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. But how important is that we're living? We're living with something that is catching us on fire, that we have a compassion in us, a love that's not from us, but from God, that we're living a life in a way that really reveals what Christianity is all about. Because that becomes the greatest argument for, for Christianity, is this Christians living the way they ought to be and enjoying the life that they have in Jesus. Amen? All right. Well, again, Jesus isn't just relying on a human witness here to help support him. He's got other things that are testifying of him and for him that are revealing he is who he says he is. And secondly, it's about his works. The witness of his works. Look at verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, they bear witness to me that the Father has sent me. See, the things that Jesus did during his, his earthly ministry, I mean, they proved that he was God. Remember what Nicodemus said when he came to Jesus? In fact, just flip over there a couple pages. John chapter 3, verse 2. John 3, verse 2. Turn over a couple pages. Here's what we read there in John 3, 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus, who's part of that religious establishment, one of the leaders, he's a Pharisee. Nicodemus comes, he's like, Jesus, listen, we know you're special. We know there's something different about you because no one can do the things you do unless God has sent him. And Nicodemus needed to grow in that understanding of who Jesus was, but he knows that there's something different about Jesus because of the works that Jesus did. Peter would say in Acts 2, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. 
Peter says that, listen, he's attested by God because of the things that he did. The signs, the miracles, the wonders. It's all there. And the book of John is laid out to reveal for us seven signs. Seven being the number of just completeness. Seven, Jesus did a whole lot more than that. Because John says at the end of the book that, listen, if I were to record everything that Jesus did, not even though all the libraries in the world would be able to contain the books that could be written about him. So John's like, oh man, I'm just gonna give you seven because I would be here until I die writing about the things of Jesus. So let me give you seven that are gonna really reveal to you that Jesus is not just a man, but he's the son of God. Here's some of the things that we see John recording, that he turned water to wine, that he healed that official son, that he's healed the paralytic here that pools of Bethesda in chapter five. Next week, we'll look at how he fed uh, the multitude, right? In John chapter six, I love that account. Jesus walked on water, he cured a blind man, and he raised a man, Lazarus, from the dead. You're not looking at somebody doing that saying, oh, that's pretty cool. You're kind of a neat guy. You're going, okay, you're like out of this world, bro. You, you gotta be God because nobody else can do that. And so John is writing this to show that this is, through these signs, revealing who Jesus is. You see, our works carry weight, don't they? Now, let me put this kind of back on us a little bit here. Because our works even, they back what we say. They give support for who we say we are. Because a person can say they're a Christian, but the real evidence of that is in how you're living. In how you're living. In fact, James would put it this way. James chapter 2, verse 18 20. He says, now someone may argue... Some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you, even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? It's vain. Now, James isn't, and a lot of people get this twisted around because they begin to think that it's our works, good deeds that save us, that we need to earn our salvation. That's not what James is talking about. He's saying, listen, Show me your faith because it's faith that saves a person. It's faith that, that brings you to a right relationship with God. It's faith, but show me a person with faith and then I will show you that person's faith by their good works, by their good deeds, by how they live. It ought to show forth. Are you living a Christian life by name but then contradicting the very person you're living for by how you're living? Now, I don't, I don't want to get things messed up here even and start to make you think that you've got to perform works to be right with God. That's not what I'm saying. But when you come to put your faith in Jesus, guess what? You're born anew. New life. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So there should be an evidence of change. You're no longer living how you once lived. It's not that you have to force that, manipulate it, or do that all on your own. That's just the work of Jesus naturally. When a person is truly born again, have surrendered their lives, repented of sin, and given their life in Jesus, you become a new creation. And it should show forth by how you live. Works carry weight. So Jesus says here, listen, my works, they show that I am who I've said I am. But he brings us to the third witness now, the witness of our Heavenly Father. He says in verse 37, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because him or because whom he sent 
him you do not believe. So God now, Jesus brings up God and, and shows that God validated Jesus' ministry. And he did so in a few different ways that we see throughout scripture. First of all, at Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3, 16 to 17. When he'd been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Right, remember John the Baptist said that, you know, this was the sign for him to see that this is Jesus when, when he saw the spirit descending upon him. His baptism. And when that happened, John's like, oh, clearly. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Secondly, God validated Jesus' ministry at his transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5. While he was still speaking, behold, the bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So remember the transfiguration. Jesus takes um, John, James, and Peter, and he brings them to the Mount Transfiguration, and Jesus appears in his glory along with Moses and Elijah. And Peter's just like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And he starts rambling and he's just like, well, should we build some tents for you guys? Should we just stay in this glory? And what does God have to do? He's like, you know, it says there, while he was still speaking, that's speaking to Peter. God just has to kind of cut him off. He's like, Peter, stop talking. Listen to him, hear him. You stop talking, listen to Jesus now. I mean, God just stating again, this is the one. And then again, it's at the triumphal entry. John 12, 28 says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven after Jesus said that, saying, I've both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now it's interesting that we have three separate occasions of a voice coming out of the heaven, out of the heavens. And yet Jesus said that they have neither heard his voice nor seen him in any way. Any voice coming from heaven would have quickly been understood by any of the Jews that this is the voice of God. There's no question who we're talking about. A voice comes from heaven, we know that's God speaking to us and we better pay attention and listen up. If I were about to speak and open in John 5 and all of a sudden a voice came from heaven and said, hear him, you'd be like, oh my goodness. We better listen up a little bit more than we have in the past. We won't doze off after five minutes this time. We're gonna really pay attention now. Because there's some weight to this here. There's some authority. But you see, Jesus says they never heard the voice. They never received it. In fact, Jesus says that they, they just haven't heard his voice at any time. Now, that could mean that they were unable to hear his, his audible voice as they cannot see him either. Or as one commentator said, Jesus implies that his hearers had not apprehended the revelation of God because they had not believed in him whom the Father has sent. They didn't believe in Jesus. They weren't receiving the full revelation of God and so they weren't able to really hear him. And one reason they couldn't hear or understand God was because they didn't have, as Jesus says there, the word of God abiding in them, right? Verse 38, you don't have his word abiding in you. They weren't able to recognize the work of God because they weren't in the word of God. And so they were out of tune with God. The same goes for us. When we don't spend time in his word. See, if you want to know the voice of God, be in his word. 
because it's through the word of God that he will primarily speak to us today. A lot of times we're walking around saying, God, just speak to me. Speak to me. I need to hear from you, Lord. And we're walking around waiting for that audible voice from heaven. And we're going, is that, did I just hear that? Is that, is that God? No, uh, maybe not God. And we're just waiting and waiting. And all the time, we're just neglecting the word of God. And we're waiting for some kind of huge event for God just to confirm or speak to us when all along he's been speaking to us through his word. And let me say, the more that you're in the word of God, the more that you're gonna know and understand the, the heart of God and know the voice of God because this is God's word to us. And so when you're in God's word and suddenly now he begins to just speak into your heart through that still small voice, you begin to recognize all the more, that's, that's God. I recognize that because it lines up with the word of God. You begin to know the word, the, the, the voice of God, the, the heart of God more. But these people didn't have the word of God abiding in them. And so they didn't understand. They didn't know. They weren't familiar with the voice of God. So these people Jesus is addressing now, because of these things, they didn't recognize Jesus either. And so Jesus says, listen, you've, you've missed out on seeing the very form of God. You haven't heard him or seen him now in, in any way because you haven't had the word of God abiding in you. At the end of verse 37 says that you've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Think about that. If they'd been in the word of God, they would have recognized Jesus. They would have recognized the words of Jesus as being the word of God. And they would have had the privilege and the joy of seeing, oh my goodness, this is God who's become flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen and beheld his glory. How amazing, but they missed out on that. They had not seen God's form in and through Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus continues on now to bring up the fourth and the last witness, and that is the witness of the scriptures. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which, which testify of me but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. See, many of the Jews that Jesus is addressing here thought that since the word of God, the, the very scriptures have been passed down to them and entrusted to them, that they really had everything they needed, that they were just golden. They couldn't do anything wrong because they've been given the word of God. And it was that alone which basically led them on into life. That's kind of how they viewed things. Their salvation and eternal life rested more on their status as God's chosen people. But see, they were called not just to be a chosen people, but to be a holy people, a set apart people. People who didn't just possess the scriptures, but allowed the scriptures to come in and really possess them and allowed that word to lead them in obedience. And that's what, what Jesus is, is meaning when he said in verse 38 that you do not have his word abiding in you. It almost sounds like it's two contradicting statements that Jesus makes in verse 38. You don't have your, uh, the word of God abiding in you. And then in verse 39, you search the scriptures. Wait, you don't have the word abiding in you, but you search the scriptures. That almost sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But the problem was that they may have been searching the scriptures but they didn't allow the scriptures to search their hearts and reveal their, their flaws and their failings. And we can easily fall into that category, can't we, today when we're searching scriptures yet not really having his word 
working in us. When we make reading the word of God just more academic or more religious as though it's a duty that we need to perform each day and say, well, I just got to check off that list today that I've read the word. And we read the word without allowing the word to work its way into us. James put it this way. He says in James 1, verse 21 to 24, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves for if anyone is a hearer only or so if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror for he observes himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was right now we wouldn't do that Physically, as James says, we want to look at ourselves in a mirror and go, and walk away and go, oh, what did I look like? Was there dirt on my face? Was there something? No, you know, when you look in a mirror, you know what you need to take care of, right? You know, I got I to gotta make myself more presentable before I leave this mirror. You don't just forget about it. But yet, that sadly oftentimes becomes the way that we work our way through the word of God, that we will read something, we'll maybe get into our, our, our chapter for the day. Maybe it's a couple of verses that we say, well, I better just get into the word. And we read, da, 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 all the while we're thinking about our day ahead and we close the word and we walk away and we're like, wait a second, what did I just read? What did I just, and sometimes we're not even remembering where we were even reading. We're like, what book was I in there? Oh my goodness, yeah. Um, and, and we just blank. We walk away and we're like that man who looks at himself in the mirror, walks away and, does, and forgets entirely. You wouldn't do that physically, but yet we do that with the word of God so often. And you see, what Jesus is getting at is that how we need to get into the word of God, but get the word of God into us. That's what's important. How we need to allow the word of God to have its work in us. This, this implanted word here of God. You see, these scriptures are important because Jesus says, what? They, these are they which, say what, somebody? Verse 39, they testify of me. Jesus says, listen, you get in the word of God and guess what they're pointing to? Guess what they're talking about? Guess who they're revealing? Jesus, right? There's your Sunday school answer today. You were, you were like, is that Jesus? Yeah, it's Jesus. Usually the answer is Jesus. It's is these which testify of me, Jesus says. It's all about Jesus. You see, studying the scriptures is not an end in itself. It's the means to an end. The end is that we might know Jesus and grow in him and learn of him and know him more and develop just this incredible relationship and life in him. That's what it's all about. That's why as we are faithful to go through God's word here at Riverside, whether it be Sunday morning, whether it be Wednesday night, or through the week in the different Bible studies that, that I'm so thankful they're happening. It's not just so we can say, oh, look at how great we are. We go through God's word. It's not an end in itself. If that's all you do, you think, well, I'm coming to, to study God's word. And because I've come and showed up and heard the word, I have life. No, you're missing it. It's so that we might get into God's words so that we might know Jesus. Because he's the life. It's all about him. And everything testifies of him. The Jews that Jesus is addressing thought that they just simply had, like, in fact, they made studying the scripture just the end in itself. 
that just examining every word and everything, that their, their studious religious duty of just studying the scriptures, they thought was enough just to give them life and bring them life. But they were missing it. They failed to see who it was all about. And you see, all through the Old Testament, it's amazing to see how the Word of God just fits together because all through the Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus. It's been said that the Old Testament is Jesus concealed and the New Testament is Jesus revealed. And it all talks about Him. You can go through different stories or accounts or, or, or topics in the Old Testament and see how amazingly it points to Jesus. In fact, Jesus brought one up in John chapter 3 verse 14 when he talked about that serpent in, in the book of Numbers when there was a plague, a, uh, you know, kind of judgment that went out upon the camp in Israel and, and there were snakes that went out and, and bit people and poisoned them. And God told Moses, take a, a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole and lift it up and whoever looks at that bronze serpent will be healed. And Jesus says, just like when Moses did that, so too in John 3, 14, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll draw him into himself. That pointed to Jesus. We read through that account, we just go, oh, that's interesting, a bronze serpent on a pole. Oh, that's kind of odd. But that would have been like that, that pole for their banner for each tribe. And it would have been the shape of a cross, most likely with a serpent on A cross being lifted up, all pointing to Jesus and the work he would do for us to bring us to life. Because we were poisoned by our sin and we were under judgment of God. But Jesus paid the penalty and the price for us to be saved. That as we look to Jesus in faith and belief, we're healed, we're forgiven. We have life in him now. And that was revealed to us in the book of Numbers. How about that? You see, the Old Testament all points to Jesus. There was 300 prophecies, some three, even more, about 300 prophecies that were all pointing to the Messiah's first coming, his birth, his ministry, his death and resurrection. Over 300 prophecies about just his first coming. Guess what? Jesus came and he fulfilled every one of them. Everyone. It's all about Jesus. And so as we get into God's word, as we search the scriptures, we're not doing so just to say, I fulfilled my religious duty of being in the word. So we get the word of God in us that we might know Jesus more and grow in him and experience that life that he has for us. But sadly, even with all that evidence that his critics, his audience that he's speaking to in John 5 here, of all the evidence that they had, John the Baptist the works of Jesus, the heavenly father, speaking from heaven, scriptures that revealed Jesus. Guess what? They had developed a hard heart against Jesus. What does Jesus say here? He says there in, in verse, um, oh, let's see here now. Verse 40. Read that, verse 40 with me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You're not willing. That's what it came down to for these people. They just simply were not willing to believe in Jesus or to come to him. They were not allowing the word of God to guide them and shape them, to direct them. They had all they needed, right, to find life. The very word pointed them to what God provided for that life in Jesus, but they didn't want to follow through in obedience to it. 
Jesus had something very similar to that near the end of his ministry when in Luke 13, 34, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. This is what it comes down to. The real reason people do not accept the Savior is not because they cannot understand the gospel or find it impossible to believe on Jesus. There's nothing about the Lord Jesus that makes it impossible for them to trust him. The real fault lies in man's own will because people love their sin more than they love the Savior. They don't want to give up their wicked ways. John 3.19 says that this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It all comes down to just the will of men. They were not willing. Why aren't people getting saved? They're not willing. They have everything that they need. And it's a free gift of salvation. Jesus has done it for you. He's not asking you to do anything. It's not that anybody can say, oh, I just can't do that. That Christianity, that's too much. I don't think I have it in me to do that. He's not asking you to do anything but to believe in him as your savior, as the one who did the work for you. It's by grace through faith. Grace, a free gift. He's done it for you, but the reason people don't, because they're not willing. They don't want to surrender control to God. They don't want to give up their sinfulness. They don't want to do this. They don't want to do that. Whatever it might be, fill in the blanks. They're not willing. Well, these religious leaders were sadly being motivated or driven by the wrong things. Look at verse 41. Jesus says, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. So Jesus points out that he's not concerned with, with honor from men. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. But these religious leaders were all about the praise of man. You know, the things that, that they did. Things that they did, they did to look good, right? They would go out in the busiest, crowded corners of the streets and they performed their acts of religion just to be seen by men. It wasn't to glorify God. It was that they could be praised. They had a love of self more than they had a love of God. That's why Jesus says, you do not have the love of God in you. You know, it's important for us to evaluate not just what we do, but why we do it. That's important because it's so easy to slip into that place of doing things, no matter how good or right they are, and, and to do them for the accolades of men, for our own self-promotion or self-glory. And anytime that it becomes more about self-glory than God's glory, it devalues the work you're doing regardless of how good it might be. God's not so concerned about what you do, but why you're doing it. Why do you do what you do? Is it for the glory of God? And that's something God can get behind. Verse 43, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? So even though Jesus came as a true representation of the Father and fulfilling scripture, people didn't accept him. But Jesus says, they'll be ready to accept another that might come even in his own name. And there were many that would come along that, that people would be quick to follow behind. And we see that with different cults and things. But I think Jesus has somebody much more specific in mind here when he says another's going to come along in his own name. Him you'll follow. I think Jesus is referring to what the Bible speaks of as the man of perdition, the man of lawlessness, the 
Antichrist, who's going to come onto the scene, and now the Jews are going to be ready to receive him as their Messiah. And you look at that and you go, why would they ever receive the Antichrist as their Messiah and yet reject Jesus as their Messiah? You just go, that's, that's ludicrous. Well, A, they had a very hard heart when Jesus came on in the scene. They didn't want to accept him, the things that Jesus was saying. But now they're in a boat right now where they're going, okay, we don't have our temple. We're kind of, you know, struggling with some things here. World's against us. This Antichrist is going to come on the scene. And it's talked about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8 to 10 talks about it. And he's going to come. And, and as the Bible says, he's going to bring in a peace plan. And he's going to have the temple rebuilt. The very thing that the Jews are so anxious to have. And, and you can go to Israel today. You can talk to any Jew today. And you'll ask them, what's going to cause you to, to recognize who the Messiah is? And they'll say... He's going to lead us in the rebuilding of our temple. That's what they're waiting for today. And things are so ripe for that to take place. Understand that. We're living in interesting days here, my friends. But there's going to come a day when, when a man's going to come. He's going to be very charismatic. He's going to bring about this, this peace that's going to allow Israel to rebuild their temple. And they're going to herald him as their Messiah. But he'll be a false one. Him they will receive who comes in his own name, without the credentials of the Father. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. Listen, if we don't have a standard of truth, then we're going to succumb to a lie. If we're not listening to what God's word says, then we're going to be that much more susceptible to deception. Jesus goes on to say here, just to finish this up here, verse 45, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, the very word of God, the, the writings of Moses, the Jews have put so much trust in, they, they exalted Moses like, oh man, he's, our, he's the guy. We will certainly listen to what he has to say. But guess what? Jesus says, Moses wrote of me. And you're not even ready to receive that. Moses wrote of the seed of the woman crushing the head of Satan, speaking of Jesus, Genesis 3.15. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and 18, Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for your prophet like me from the midst, or from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command in him or command him. And, and Moses, what is he doing? He's writing about Jesus. Hey, listen, guys, don't look to me. There's one coming. That's the guy you need to follow. They had it all before them, but they failed to listen to the writings of Moses. And if they reject the one that they honor in Moses, well, they're going to reject Jesus too. So these Jewish re religious leaders, I mean, they had religion down, right? They knew what it took to be religious, but they didn't have a relationship with God. And they were missing out on the very life that God had for them. And it was all wrapped up in Jesus. Don't get caught up, guys, in religion. In doing your thing. Man, enjoy the relationship that we have in and through Jesus. Relationship with our Heavenly Father. All these witnesses here in John 5 stand and give evidence of who Jesus is. What have you done with that evidence? And what have you done with Jesus? Are you living not just for him, but living in him and enjoying life with him?
I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to just close with a song and just give us opportunity to, to just respond to God's word here today. And like we've been saying, to take these things to heart and allow the word of God to abide in us. A couple of things to look at here. First witness, John the Baptist. John said, it's Jesus that is preferred before him. Well, has Jesus been preferred before your own desires? Are you living to just be in Jesus and promote Jesus? Secondly, Jesus' miracles reveal his power. Have you trusted in the work of the Lord to do in you what you cannot do for yourself? And the greatest of the works that Jesus has done is saving you. Saving you. Are you walking in that life? Are you experiencing that new life in him that he's given to you freely? Know that life. Live in that life. Newness of life. That's the greatest work that Jesus has done. Thirdly, God testified that Jesus is his son by speaking from heaven. Have you been open to hearing the voice of God? Are you living with an ear open to what he has to say? Lastly, the scriptures, as we've seen, all point to Jesus. Are you reading God's word and having it abide in you? May his word lead you not to live religiously, but rather to live in and enjoy relationship with our awesome Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's close with a song, but just ask the Lord to do that work in you and to reveal to you what maybe you've been lacking, what you need to grow in, what He can do in your life today and just come before Him this morning.